Welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian legal border-related issues. Uh, I'm Steve Murins here with Peter Edelman and Deanna Okanachoff, and we're joined today by Daryl Larson, a now-retired uh, Vancouver immigration lawyer who has been practicing or who practiced immigration law for, well, what, since 1988, so 30 years. Uh, and we're here to talk today about Daryl's career and uh, tips that he'd have for new lawyers starting out, uh, how the immigration system has changed in the course of his practice, and what other other topics arise today. So, Daryl, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. So, why don't we just start with, uh, I guess, the same question that anyone asks us uh, is, why did you get into immigration law? Uh, well, the, answer, the short answer is sort of by happenstance. Um, when I started practicing law in Alberta in 1977, I did a general practice for a number of years. And I'd say after six or seven years, I felt really burned out by that because there were so many different areas I was involved in and keeping on top of everything was quite draining. And so I started to move into uh, I wouldn't say a specialization, but doing more and more labor law. And I, I ended up uh, being one of the arbitrators on the Public Service Grievance Appeal Board, which was the uh, appeal board for the union and the union uh, and the government of Alberta. So I did that for a number of years. And then we decided to move to Vancouver after having visited Expo in 1986. <laughs> and my, my, my wife said, well, why are we living in Alberta when it's such a beautiful country out here? It's the ocean, the mountains, you know. and of course that summer was just the most beautiful weather. And so we, we agreed that we would move out by the end of 1987. And so we, we carried on in, in the, I would say, about middle of 19, July, <coughs> August 1987, uh, my, my wife quit her practice because she was giving birth to our son, who was born in August of 1987. And then, I think it was Grey Cup weekend, she said, I'm going up to Vancouver. I said, oh, what for? I'm going to find us a place to live. <laughs> really? You think we're serious about this? She said, yes. So she got on the plane. And before she left, she said, what do you want? And what kind of place do you want? I said, okay, well, I want it to be the mountain. I want it to overlook the bay, stream in the background, and uh, no grass to cut. <laughs> so she came back and said, guess what? I got it. <laughs> so it was this beautiful house that, that was in Caulfield. It looked over the bay. It was rocky, no, no yard, little Cypress Creek in the background running along, and it was a gorgeous place. <clears throat> and we moved in. And the place was actually for sale. And they wanted, I think at the time, $200,000 for it. But we just come from Edmonton, where we sold a fairly nice house. And I, think, I think we sold it for $150,000 or $160,000. But we thought, oh, this is too, too expensive. This is crazy. We'll wait a year, and then we will look at it. Well, a year later, of course, it was at $300,000. <laughs> so we had to move into the market. Anyway, that's, that's... I'm sure it's gotten cheaper since. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know what that place would be worth now. About five million. <laughs> My bad. Yeah. But anyway, so we came out. Uh, we 
we had at the time, there was uh, six kids that we had, two from my first marriage, and then three of Deb's and one of ours. The two of my kids were staying with their mother in Edmonton at the time. Left Alberta December 30th, I think it was, and I was, we had a big truck that had already gone with the most of our furniture. I had a second, like a U-Haul truck that I was driving, and we left Edmonton and headed into this snowstorm. You couldn't see more than 15 feet in front of you. <laughs> so, and Deb was in the car with the other kids. So we drove to, uh, to Jasper and we stopped to have supper. And our, our destination was uh, the midpoint, I think it was Blue River. Mm-hmm. And so we got out and the storm had abated. The moon had come out and it was just a beautiful ride from there to Blue River where we, we stayed and then the next day we arrived in Vancouver to this new place and the, the air was balmy. We didn't need winter parka, the cedar snow, the trees was there and it just seemed like we had made the right decision. But <laughs> neither of us had jobs nor were we called to the, uh, to the bar yet. So for the first, I would say, six to eight months, I commuted back to Alberta where I had some trials that were ongoing. And, and meanwhile, we both did our study to do the bar exams for And so we wrote those exams in July, I think it was. We both passed them and were called to the bar. And now, finding a job. So I had a labor background. I thought, oh, I'll check out the labor firms. And surely I'll, I'll be in demand because I practiced for you know, 10, 11 years. Mm. Well, I knew my way around. But of course, what they wanted was a, was a book of business, which I didn't have. So anyway, uh, I, I sort of struggled a bit for a while. You know, sort of set up my shingle and was waiting for things up. And then this, this job came open at Legal Services. And it was about doing federal court work, which I had never appeared in before. Mm. And it was about immigration. And so I told, look, I've never been in federal court. I don't, but I said I could learn. And I've been, I've had lots of other court experience in the other courts. Legal Services is the Legal Aid Society? Legal, legal Aid, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was Legal Services Society of British Columbia. So what they were looking for was a, a lawyer who would do federal court judicial reviews of immigration and refugee matters. And uh, I guess I convinced them that I, that I was able to learn because they, they hired me. And I was there for, I think, two and a half years. And I have to say it was probably one of the best jobs that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked it there. And I got lots of experience in the, in the federal court. And I also did some of the other work then in the BC court uh, system, court of appeal, uh, on non-immigration matters. And then after a couple of years, I joined the immigration section, got to know some of the people. and. Then I ended up meeting and talking with Mobina Jaffer, and she said, okay, why don't you come on? So I said, okay. I went to work for her, and she was out in uh, close to Burnaby at the time, close to, uh, to the boundary road, I think. And that was, it was fine, but I wanted to be downtown. So after about a year, I said, let's, let's open an office downtown. She said, okay, but I didn't think her heart was really in it. So I, I went downtown and opened the office, and carry on my practice. And so that's where we sort of ended our relationship. And uh, 
in, in terms of the professional side of it. And that's how I got into immigration law. And so at that time, we're talking 1988, 89. Yeah, 88, 89 when I started. Or that's a big old 91, I would say, is when I went on. Yeah. And at that time, I would imagine it's mainly Hong Kong immigration. Actually, actually, what I was doing was because it was a lot of refugee stuff and federal court stuff, uh, a lot of Central American uh, refugees at the time. Hong Kong was pretty much over by that point. I mean, people that came from Hong Kong had already gotten their residency and said, well, most, most cases, citizenship. There are a few Chinese, but mostly I would say at that time it was uh, Central Americans. Okay, and how did they hear about you? This is all pre-interweb. Well, um, basically, I ended up starting out doing a legal aid practice, which which was a good way to get into the area, to get known, and to you know, get some interesting work. Uh, but I realized after a while that you know, legal aid simply drives you down, it means that you're not going to be able to stand, so you're better off doing one private case as opposed to three legal aid cases. I began to wean myself from the legal and I just word of mouth, I guess I got around and I did a lot of, one of my earlier cases that I'm quite proud of was was a Mexican woman who had come to Canada illegally, came as a visitor in overstayed, and she was working for this fellow as a caregiver, and he had sexually assaulted her, raped her, and she became pregnant and had a child, and then somehow came into the, the sites of immigration and they wanted to remove her back to Mexico. And so we took the case on and basically uh, we took the position that the Immigration Act was not paying attention to the best interests of the child. The uh, final authority of that was the Supreme Court of British Columbia because they have parents' patriotic jurisdiction. And of course, that was resisted greatly by immigration. But in the end, uh, we ended up uh, we lost in the Supreme Court, took it to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal allowed the appeal and did, did say, yes, there is the parents' patriarch jurisdiction. And yes, the you know, BC Supreme Court should accept jurisdiction in these cases because the federal court is not a court of inherent jurisdiction. It's bound by a statute, and it really couldn't you know, step in and say, hey, we'll, we'll take on parents patriot, even though case law eventually evolved so that in Baker, the best interest of the child was, was actually incorporated into the Immigration Act. I feel that having done that sort of highlighted the plight of a lot of children. And in my mind, I think it also helped them to sort of push them into the, okay, let's do something about this, because after that, Baker came down and then the Immigration Act. So that, that was a that was a nice case that I, I and uh, so in terms of the work you were, so the, when you started in the federal court, like doing work in the federal court around that time, that would have been soon after the board was created. Yes. And so, so what was it, just in terms of your experience of the evolution? What 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 was practice at that time like compared, to, and how have you seen things evolve uh, yeah. over the course of your career? Of course, when I started practicing the new the, the new immigration act come into a place where the, the uh, federal government had basically put a lot of restrictions on judicial review, especially in the area of refugee law. So you had to get leave. And of course, that was an issue that was litigated you know, a lot by 
Barbara Jackman, but ultimately the court said no, you, it's, it's legitimate for them to put that restriction in. And so that was still a, a case that we had to get his leave. I've, I've heard rumors that Barb still doesn't like the leave requirement. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm not sure if there are many lawyers that really like it from the I mean, they, and of course they didn't have it for overseas applications at the time. So if you had, if you were refused on an you know, immigration application or whatever, you know, you could just go straight into court and uh, hear the case. And then of course, I think... We need to explain what leave is, the, oh. this idea, yeah. yeah. Well, leave, leave simply means you've, you've got to get the permission of the court in order to go on with your case. So you essentially do this all on paper, for the most part, and make your argument and the test really is that you just have to show that you know, there is a reasonable cause here. You don't have to show that you would win or not, but that there's but the, the reality is I think that leave applications, you pretty much have to make your case as fully as you can at, at that point. For those of us who just started practicing, are you suggesting there was a time when the, the federal court would just hear cases like in, in other areas of law or yeah isn't that amazing <laughs> <laughs> do, do tell us about those times I... <laughs> well it was quite sweet because usually when those cases came on I mean if people got a lawyer involved there's usually something that was wrong with the, the decision and so you ended up settling most of those cases you know not having to go to the, the court so why did they introduce the leave provision well, I guess the immigration department didn't like the way that uh, didn't like the unlevel playing field, so they wanted to make it more unlevel. Yeah. Uh, I was just so like so. I've often heard about this whole pre-ERPA and post-ERPA world. And was it actually like was the introduction in two thousand one of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act that big a game changer in your practice? Well, I think it was for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean. The, the leave application for uh, non-refugee, non-Canadian cases. But I think more importantly was the, the extent that regulations came to now be the focus of, you know, what the law was as opposed to the act. It used to be the act was there and that was fairly comprehensive and the regulations were short and, you know, not, not that substantial. Yeah. Of course, they changed everything, basically allow the, the, the department to make the, the rules and laws under the immigration regulations. So, yeah, yeah we have that further departure where we have so many ministerial instructions. Yeah, of course. <laughs> regulations of are course, yeah. Of course, yeah. So just to maybe explain that a little bit. So um, if, when we say the act, we mean the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, which means in order to change the act, politicians actually have to be accountable for the changes debated in parliament. Then there's a shift to the regs, which is really the department or the government publishing with some notice normally what they want, what changes will be made. And now as Deanna said, it's basically by editing the website, uh, they can make changes. Well, in the regulations, there, there's actually a process by which the governor and council approves the regulations. They're posted in advance. You have an opportunity to make uh, to at least make some submissions on them. The ministerial instructions come out with no notice whatsoever uh, and directly out of the, out of the minister's office. So yeah. it's, it's a yeah. pretty it's significant change. It's kind of the natural change. attrition that we're seeing. You know, like the, the act is the hardest to change. The regulations are somewhere in between and the ministerial instructions are the easiest of them all. And this is part of this sort of... And I think that the whole Canadian Bar Association and not just the Canadian Bar Association, but the you know, the bar in general 
has sort of, from the beginning of your practice, sort of been resisting this, this downward slide of, you know, watching the protections that are in place deteriorating yeah. over time. It's almost like we're going back in time to now, you know, you know uh, an act, you know, and that, that's what you paid attention to, policy had to, to yes. in conformity to that, and the regulations. And now with these, with these uh, minister uh, orders, it's like going back to the days of the kings and fiats. Yes. You know, like, this is how it is. End of story, which which I find quite reprehensible. Mm-hmm. I sometimes am, I find myself where you know you're you're applying for things where there actually is no regulation on the books. Yeah. Well, taking that to it, it's extreme. The BCPNP only had legislation introduced a few years ago, and before that, we used to wonder under what authority they had to approve and refuse applications or collect fees when they didn't even have an app. That's a good question. One other thing I wanted to go back to was, um, I mean, you talked about going from an LSS staff lawyer position, um, talking about natural attrition, to becoming an LSS tariff lawyer, to getting to the stage where you basically had to force yourself to stop taking LSS tariff files because you can't run a practice like that. Um, I don't know, maybe just talk a little bit. Well, basically, what I mean, when you're starting out and you don't have any other choice, I guess you're hungry enough, you'll do it. Uh, but, you know, if you've got a family to feed and you have other financial goals, uh, you, you can't do it that way. So the way I approached it and viewed it was that legal aid was sort of my pro bono work. And so I would take on files from time to time, just, you know, as a way of giving back. You know, that didn't mean we didn't, I didn't do other co-born work as well, but that's sort of how I justified, you know, not taking so many cases on, but still keeping my hand in it. Uh, so one of the things that I, that I found that was important for me to do early on was to, to become, I don't know, as expert as I could in this area, which meant that every federal court case that came out, I would read and I would also digest so that I had only course of years, a whole litany of cases with my notes on it, and just doing that process reinforced it in your mind so that when when things came up, you could remember, oh yes, okay, there's a case on this, or there's, you know, something along this line, and I, so I think that's a very important thing to do, and more importantly, I think, is also to make sure that anybody starting out in this area, you know, go through the act, like read it, like, several times. If you can memorize it, great, but I mean, that's kind of not such a good idea because they keep changing it, or they did keep changing it quite frequently. And then the same thing with the regulations, because those, that's the foundation of what this is all about. And, and I know there's now policy and immigration uh, ministers' orders and all that stuff. But I mean, just the more you can sort of be aware and, and on top of all this stuff, the better job you're going to do for your clients. So that's something you did throughout your practice, yeah. as you read all of it. Well, I have to confess that. As a <laughs> later on in practice, I would just read the, you know, sort of ones that were out note. You know. you know, I took a similar approach. Like when I first started, I actually went on a trip to Belize and took a textbook and read through it a bit. But when I first, in my first year, uh, was when I started blogging. And people often ask, oh, was the blog great for business and this and that? But originally, in the first year, the blog was pretty much just a daily case summary or, uh, research beyond the news stories to what the law was, because that was how I learned immigration law. Yeah. And I find that there are maybe 
too many people who immediately leap to trying to market without learning the material first. Yeah, exactly. And that's a good way to do it by writing about it, and especially writing about it to others, because now you have a little bit of accountability yeah. uh, in terms of what you say. You can also not do refugee law and have Peter Aylman do a podcast with you where you're forced to talk and learn about refugee law all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way about corporate law, <laughs> except now I'm not about to start taking on corporate files. No, and I'm not, I still have not done a refugee file. Somehow, not enough of it is rubbed off on me yet. <laughs> but, and I think you, so when did you, because you had a mixed practice of both corporate and refugee and litigation, if I... Well, ultimately, but starting off, it was pretty much litigation. And, you know, that changed over the years. It's been a long year round. You get to be known as an immigration lawyer. And so then a lot of referrals from other law firms, because they don't know anything about immigration law. So they oh, you're an immigration lawyer. Here's a company that needs to help with a work permit or, you know, whatever. Uh, and just by being out there and, and building your reputation, you, I mean, getting referrals from federal court judges, from people in the Department of Justice, like, I mean, like from immigration officers, like, to me, those are accolades that I, I, I couldn't even buy. So that, that was uh, an important thing. So it wasn't deliberately setting out to build the corporate immigration practice as much as it fell on your lap. Yeah. And, and frankly, I mean, the solicitor side of immigration work is not very appealing to me, but we did it. And that's why we had other lawyers that came in and could work on that. I much preferred the litigation and the, the, you know, the jostling and the tooling and crawling in court and it's strategic, strategizing. Yeah. And uh, I also like a big part of what I enjoyed about the practice was mentoring uh, you know, younger lawyers and just sort of giving them some advice, guidance, and then throwing them to the deep end of the pool. Yeah. See how they were doing that. It's pretty effective. And so you mentioned the uh, Mexican, um, I guess, caregiver who you helped stay. What were some of your other more memorable cases? I'm going to come to one in particular that I mentioned that we talk about, but yeah. beyond him, uh, what were some of the other more memorable cases? Well, I mean, the, they're, I suppose they're, all memorable to some degree, but you know, but there's another another case. Some of the cases, the most interesting cases I had were actually at the immigration division, where uh, you can actually get your teeth into this and you can make, make arguments. And I find at least then that the immigration division members were actually fairly open and receptive and fair. Uh, they worked political appointments, uh, and so. I really enjoyed doing that, and I you know, had a couple, number of cases like dealing with what I would call disguised extradition, where there's people are here and they're wanted in another country, and so then rather than you know, go through a extradition process, they say, well, let's just get them on immigration matters, so whatever it was, overstay or whatever, and, and uh, you know, it was a couple of cases like that that we. Before, unfortunately, at the end, uh, it just became too onerous on the clients to resist this thing. <laughs> the legal fees were fairly high, and at the end of the day, I think they realized that, well, maybe just go back and paste the music and you know, get it done with and uh, pay the price, whatever, whatever it is, instead of fighting this out forever without any real sort of hope in the end of 
getting any kind of status in Canada. Yeah. Well, and I think, and maybe we can just get into the uh, case, but with Lai Changshin, wasn't he at one point like you succeed in getting an order that he be released, and as he's leaving, he's immediately redetained uh, to basically rehash and re go through it all again? Well, yeah, I mean, that, he, Mr. Lai was a very interesting fellow. He's a fairly short Chinese guy. Uh, very, he didn't speak English, and whenever he would call on the phone, he would be, Larson! Okay, I know who it is. Then he would put me to his son, and we would have the conversation, whatever it was. Uh, but he was very, he had a very strong personality, and I think that was his strength, is that people tended to like him, and they would tend to do things for him, and I think that's how he ended up being so successful in his business, notwithstanding the allegations that he built his empire on smuggling and bribing and everything else. Personally, I, I don't, maybe he did some of that, but I mean, that was the whole culture in China. I mean, it's, it's, there's, at the time, there was all kinds of levels of corruption and paying off officials, which was considered to be normal. And then, of course, they came in with an anti-corruption uh, stance and everything that was uh, corruption was now going to be severely punished even by death in many cases. And I mean, for those, like, so you were the lawyer, the immigration lawyer, and I think he had a team on different issues, but of the most, well, how many years was he the most wanted man in China, most wanted fugitive in well, China? I think he, um, he came in 19, 19, I'm just trying to remember the year, 1997, 98, I can't remember what exactly it was. And then he was finally sent back in 2012, so whatever years that is. But uh, yeah, we initially acted for him when he came to us and he said, look, the Chinese, are, Chinese government are after me, they've sent some people over to talk to me, uh, and they want me to go back, I don't want to go back. They've already you know, executed several people in my company for corruption, and so basically we, we were sort of towing the line, waiting for something to fall. <laughs> then he goes, he goes to Niagara Falls and spends a, a few weeks there gambling. Of course, he had the money to do that. But you know, the, the story is already, he dropped like $500,000 in, in a night or whatever. And then he came to the attention of the Niagara Falls police because they thought he's involved in money laundering. So they investigated him and then it turned out about who he was, and then immigration got involved. Of course, they immediately detained him, and at, at that point, we filed the refugee claim. And then, then the big fight for, you know, from the point of making his refugee claim for the next year or two was on his release. And he did not like being in prison, which I understand. Um, so he instructed us to, you know, fight tooth and nail to get him released. Very first um, detention review we had, immigration was arguing that, look, it's no big deal to allow to, to keep him in custody because you know we've got an open and shut case and he'll be out of here in six months. And I, I said to the adjudicator, given what Mr. Lai's case is all about, he'll still be here 10 years from now. And of course he was. But in the meantime, everybody, talked about this guy had money, he had 
he had a, a motive to flee, an ability to flee, and he should be, you know, remain, remain in custody for the duration. So we'd have every 30 days another detention review. And finally, we got to the point where we, we decided we have to be innovative. So we came up with the strategy of a, a home arrest, which he wanted to do. So we finally were able to convince the, uh, the then adjudication division to uh, release him to his own house, but with the proviso that he hire a security team, a security company, to have 24-7 supervision, which was costing him like $80,000 a month. And so he was able to do that for a period of time. Then, whatever reason, the funds you know, dried up and they took him back into custody. And again, it was another several months of fighting to get him released on his, you know, without any kind of a bond. And, and we kept arguing, look, he's, he's always abided by the terms and conditions of his release. You know, and, and, and finally we were able to get him out again and then of course the refugee thing started. And there was a lot of things that were very untoward about the case. You know, there was a witness that we were able to find um, through another lawyer who had been in China who reluctantly agreed to swear an affidavit sending out facts that would you know, exonerate him. And in the process, and, and there was also this uh, uh, this order of, of uh, uh, what's the word? secrecy or, or uh, confidentiality, yeah, confidentiality. Uh, so that some parts of this were not to be in the public domain. Um, so without naming names, what happened is that a team from Immigration and the Department of Justice went over, unbeknownst to us, to China, brought this woman in, the PSB guards, and basically cross-examined her on her affidavit, uh, we, I, which I, I don't know what the results were because they were never disclosed, and this woman then disappeared. Uh, so to me, that was a, that was quite a, a travesty, and, and we, we complained loud and hard, but uh, what can I do? You know, it was sort of a shrug of the shoulders, and on we go. So anyway, I, so I wasn't involved in his actual refugee case, mostly in matters of when he was detained. He would be detained from time to time because he reached a curfew or he did something that was not insulated. Bring him in. And at the end, when he was appearing in front of the adjudicators, they all got to know him. And notwithstanding their earlier views of, wow, he's quite risk, blah, 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 they came to see him as a real genuine guy who did honor his commitment to not flee, to you know, to, and when he breached the rules, he would you know, acknowledge that he did and, and uh, promise not to do it again. So I think a lot of them really developed kind of a, an affection for him. Mr. Lai, how are you? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, good, good. So he, so he was a very interesting character. Um, and then, of course, when the final analysis came, the after he had been through the different judicial reviews and the prom, you know, Paul had been, been uh, denied, and then JR, I think on at least two occasions, maybe three. David Maitis was the one that was acting on that. But every time Paul was denied, they'd arrest him, and then he, uh, I'd go in and you know, argue for his release. And, and it became quite, you know, the, the board members of the, on the uh, immigration division were very sympathetic and they would tend to, to release him. 
in the final days, um, when his his last uh, trial was was not allowed, and the government basically came out and said, "Yeah, we're satisfied that China is not going to execute," and they had some protocols that had been arranged between them and the Chinese government that China would not execute him, that he would get a, a fair trial, and so on and so forth. Um, and so there was a, a final application for a stay of removal pending a further challenge. So the and this this is I find this a little bit puzzling. The stay was heard like on a morning, okay, ten o'clock or whatever. The decision came out that afternoon, like twenty-four pages, you know, of fairly well written prose about why you know, that he shouldn't be allowed to stay. And the judge made a reference to an old Chinese proverb about the boy who came to his grandfather with a bird in his hand, and he said to his grandfather, should I crush it or set it free? And the grandfather figured, well, if I say set it free, he'll crush it. If I say crush it, then he may set it free. Uh, and so he used the same analogy about lie being the bird going back to the hand of the Chinese. And I, I found that to be a little bit um, unjudicious. Uh, so I, it basically, I think that the fix was in because at this time, the government was at serious talks with China about trade relations and you know, making sure things were, were getting in place. And Lai was a big form in the Prague, the Chinese government, because he was their most wanted fugitive for years and years and years. And so in the end, um, he yeah, would, had no choice and he was shipped back to China. I, I should just mention one other time when he, another time when they were going to remove him, um, he had heard through his connection somehow that the decision was coming down before it had been released. And so he called me, he called David Maitis and said, look, this is what's happening. They're, they're going to remove me like in three days. And he says, I'm not going anywhere, but I just want you to know. And so like a day later, they came and gave him the decision and arrested him again on the basis that he was going to be a flight risk. And so at that point, I mean, and I think this was a turning point in terms of the, the, the confidence that the board had in him showing up was that he, and we were able to prove with, with emails and stuff that he actually did have this knowledge beforehand. And, you know, we said, look, faced with this knowledge, if he was a flight risk, he would have been gone. Fact is, he stayed here to face music and to abide by the legal process. And I, and I think they got that. And so... That, was, that made it much easier for him to be released uh, in the meantime. Was it in, in the context, because there had been reports, uh, I recall at the time, that the, that the, the Chinese government had, had hacked the um, Immigration Refugee Board's computers. Was that revealed while he was still here, or was that revealed after the fact? Well, uh, okay, that's a good question. I, I recall that as well, and I think it was while he was still here. Um, yeah, but you know, I I don't think anything ever. So you weren't involved in that aspect of the case. No, no, no. Just I okay. just had heard about it. Yeah. yeah no. Because I mean, I, I just knew the, yeah. the media reports. And it was yeah. always one of those interesting, or rather brazen things for me that you would have uh, that you would have a government because uh, we always make. Uh, I mean, many of my clients, especially my refugee clients, have 
very well-founded suspicions that various security services, whether it's the Chinese or the Iranians or a number of different uh, security services are, are active in expatriate communities yeah. um, in Vancouver or, or elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and this was the one of the times when we had, or what would appear from media reports anyways, some pretty clear evidence of, of what seemed like a rather brazen attack, uh, cyber attack on the, on the board itself. Um, and I, I was, uh, I've always been curious about the details of, of what happened uh, yeah. and, and what the, uh, and how that would have affected a case. It's, uh, yeah, I think this was after the fact of his decision so that they, they hacked into, I don't know if it was the, if it was the refugee board or the whole immigration board. But another example of the brazenness of the Chinese government was during the case, um, he was accosted by these guys who basically said, we're from the government, we want to make a deal, we want you to come home and we're, you know, here's what we'll offer you and your family will be safe and so on and so forth. So we, we got the names of these guys and we checked and we discovered that they had come in on, on immigration visas as members of two companies here in Vancouver. And clearly they weren't, but you know, so they had gotten their, their immigration visas that way and then come in and basically to sort of exploit him. And we tried to make some hay out of that, but it didn't seem to matter much. Yeah, I've read in the, I can't remember where I've read that it's becoming an increasing trend of the Chinese government to, when extradition uh, or removal under another provision from country A to China is taking too long, that they'll just send their own people to have a, a fireside chat with uh, the person. So as you're doing a case like this, where um, there's a lot of government resources going to remove someone, it's in the uh, it's in the media constantly. You have, I think, the Harper government making press releases or statements as to uh, you know while committing that the process will be fair that almost predetermining like the decision borderline um does it change how you view like well two questions first does it change how you view the uh role of a lawyer or the nature of the state versus a lawyer and then uh something that i don't want to forget to ask is did you ever get uh just were you ever contacted by people via email or something that made you go like okay this case is different, like whether it be the Chinese government or just random calls from people say who might just be, you know, you're the lawyer for the most wanted man in China, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, there were, there were uh, hate mails and there were also postings on various media sites talking about scumbag lawyers who do this kind of thing. Um, you know, I, didn't ha I never felt personally threatened by any of this stuff. But, you know, your, your question about my view <laughs> the state and, and how this all works sort of opens the door to a much broader question. I think this may be surprising to you, but as an individual, I personally think that order should be open as a matter of principle. People should be able to go wherever they want. Of course, there are constraints. I mean, if somebody's a criminal or a terrorist, I mean, then there are other laws to deal with them. But, you know, just because you happen to be born in Sudan, uh, doesn't mean that that should determine the fate of your, your life. We are fortunate 
and I've been born and raised in this in, in basically one of the most wealthy places in the world. And we have a lifestyle that is second to none. And it just seems to me that, and I don't want to get into all the pros and cons, but as a principle, human rights should allow free movement of people throughout the world. Now we have that within Canada, within our states, everybody can move freely within the borders. So then the argument sometimes is, well, you're not in Canada, you're not a member, but there's no requirement for membership in Canada to move freely. That can be done by a citizen, a permanent resident, or just somebody else who is here. The only constraint might be if somebody who's here legally had been arrested and on terms and conditions. So I, I, I don't see why that shouldn't apply across the world. And, and I, I understand that that's just not a practical thing that's ever going to change. But I just have a, a view that this is a very important principle that we should recognize. And I think that's also part of what motivated me as a lawyer to try to help these people. Did your uh, position on that arise before you became an immigration lawyer or did it develop over time? Well, I think it evolved over over time. I mean, when I'm a young lawyer right out of law school, I mean, there's rules and there's institutions and all of this stuff. And as you, as you begin to work in the area and you see the abuses by the state, by the department and whatnot, you realize that maybe, maybe they're not so righteous after all just because they happen to be the state and have a, you know, a legislative mandate to coercion doesn't mean that they're going to do the right thing. So, and so in, in terms of the, uh, the work that you did later on, so as you started to understand more about the, the tools that you had and, and how the system worked, um, in the later stages of your career, what did, uh, what did practicing immigration law look like for you? Or what, what were you, uh, what was the focus of the last portion of your career, like the last five or 10 years? Well, I mean, I, I guess it was um, well, the last five or 10 years, I've been sort of slowly easing out of this profession. And many people know I've been taking more time off each year, spending time at the cabin or on trips. So it became, the focus became more of making sure that we had people in place who could, you know, carry out the various functions that were required to, to fight to go to court, to develop strategies, and so on and so forth. So my job became more, more of a strategician, I guess, in trying to help formulate that and help develop people. And, and that's now Laura. Well, I think there's five people at your firm or six? Well, it's not my firm anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think they've got uh, six, or, six or seven lawyers now. And I think they've been sort of expanding and it's interesting, it's, uh, it's, uh, Fatty is the only male lawyer there. <laughs> so, yeah. not, not that that means anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What would you say, um, what do you say to people that are wanting to enter into the immigration field in terms of any pointers that you have? Well, uh, don't enter the immigration field if you want to make a lot of money. Because mm-hmm. it's not about money, it's about, you know, doing other, I mean, no other area of the law that I can think of gives you the, the same feedback that you do in immigration, the gratitude from people that you've helped and how, how grateful they are and how pleased they are with what you've done. Uh, I don't think you get that, you know, doing divorce law and criminal criminal law. <laughs> That's how things go with you. Yeah. <laughs> you only got 10 years instead of 15. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, so I mean, I would say, you know, you, you should really feel like you have a, a desire to, to do this kind of stuff and to help people. Um, and it certainly is interesting because you meet people from all over the world. And if you're willing to, you can also make it as a means to travel and go to other countries to, you know, various events or to see clients or visit people. Did any of your kids go to law school? No. no. Did you uh, encourage or discourage? Oh yeah, I encouraged them. Yeah. <laughs> I think two wrote the LSAT and then decided not to. Uh, so they, they, it was funny. They kept looking at their parents, Devin and myself, as lawyers, and they said, oh man, you guys work way too hard. <laughs> and then, so now I think two of, two of them are in the movie industry and they work like typically 16 hours a day. So I just don't understand that argument. They get well paid. So, <laughs> Where do you see uh, like the profession going in the next four to five years? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think it's up to the professional, but I think it, it's very important for people that practice in this area to uh, understand that they have a lot of power to to direct policy, to you know stop the government from doing things. I mean, lawsuits are are powerful. I mean, they they can change a lot of action that's brought on by immigration that isn't, I think, necessarily desirable. Um, I mean, you know, in your own the, the case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada of the uh, smugglers, right? I mean, there was some they put that into some perspective, I believe. Yeah, I mean they can. It, they didn't it can have some impact. We're just we're just. Uh, they didn't get what you what you wanted. I know exactly. Well, we're re, we're just relitigating it this week, so I'm a little bit bitter. I'm, I'm a little bit bitter about it this week. So <laughs> it's uh, just because I just had to drop. I, I spent the last. But, but there you go. A good a good uh, 25 hours this week drafting yeah. the factums on the, uh, <laughs> the, the that being relitigated. But, the court that's, that's good. That's the point. Is that you know your backbone is still there. You're still in the fight. Right. Okay. No, oh, no. There's always a, there's a, there's a, the the immigration department is the source of plenty of motivation. <laughs> so I mean, I, I think the way I see the profession going, I hope is that you know people do accept and recognize responsibility to to fulfill their duties to to resist. I think a lot of the stuff that is not right and is not proper in terms of the immigration bar. Um, I, I think that a lot of people are a lot of practitioners. And I, I mean, I respect them. They they don't go into the the corporate side so, too much, and and they basically end up saying well, whatever the immigration department says. That's that's the way it is, and so they they don't have this attitude, this mentality of well, is it right? Does it fall within the act? Does it fall within the regulations? You know, is there something we can do from a legal perspective to stop it? And I think that's important for the profession to to do in order to maintain the integrity of the system. Immigration has become a much bigger business than it was at the beginning of your career. So yes, yeah. yeah. No, I know. I understand that. I mean, and again, with, with, you know, even with work permits, uh, why, why do we, why does our government have so many restrictions on people coming to work when it's demonstrated that we we need them? These people are already willing and able to come to work. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I was listening to a show the other day on CBC. This guy, Eve. Hot then I think his name is, he runs a, uh, a, school, a cooking school with vegetarian menus. 
And he was saying that he's got over you know, 200 students, about 100 of them from other countries, coming to learn this stuff. And he's saying that in Vancouver, there's a huge shortage of chefs and cooks. And yeah, these people have a hard time getting work permits like other people do to, to be able to stay and, and uh, work their way through the system to get work experience and possibly to get status at some point. So I, I, don't, I don't understand the resistance there, why, why there's so much resistance to work permits. I mean, we have a population that is, is declining according to our birth rate. We have jobs that need to be filled. And so it sounds like what your advice is, not just to new entrants to the profession, but even to more seasoned lawyers, is just because it's what the rule says, don't take that for granted, but yeah, be prepared to question the principles and to challenge them. And even if you're not a litigator of it, you know, there are others who might be willing to champion a cause. So looking, looking back over your career now, is there one, one thing uh, in particular that you think you did that you did right, and is there looking back? Is there something that you would have done differently? <laughs> I was just thinking uh, the same question. <laughs> the, uh, for for those of us who are <laughs> looking out over the next few uh, the next few years of our own careers, well, I'm not I'm not sure I did anything right. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of it is just in response. So, but I mean, um, I, I guess I feel that one one of the right things I did was to always uh, respect my clients and to listen to them and to explain things to them mm. and to you know make sure that they were aware of what's going on, make sure they understood their options mm. and to to instruct me accordingly. So I mean I mean I'm sure most lawyers do that, but that I don't think you're right actually. I don't think most lawyers do that. Um, I think a lot forget that that's actually fundamental for what they do, even if the answer is not the one that they wish to deliver. Yeah. Well, well maybe it's part maybe of I the guess. service. People <laughs> forget it's part of the service industry really. Yeah. So I think that pointed well. So, so that, well, it's like the pr part of where that arises is that uh, a person can hear four people give them news like you're not going to qualify, and then one person who's either being dishonest or just unbelievably, maybe unreasonably hopeful, say, "I guarantee it," and they'll go with that person. Yeah. I think it's true, but I think that the system is also really, really complicated and people don't make the effort to actually try and explain these things. I mean, if we're supposed to be gifted communicators, like that's actually our fundamental role is to do yeah. that, to actually help people make informed decisions. And if you can't get that, then you shouldn't, you yeah. know? Yeah. You well, I think, I think that another thing that's happening in immigration is the, the rise of the immigration consulting practice and compassion, which I think does so much harm. Oh I mean, it creates so much business for lawyers because you know their advice is. I mean, there there are some good ones out there. I, mean, I wouldn't say that, but there there are so many people that have how how they got through the course. I don't know, and they they don't understand the, the nuances. They don't have that same training that a lawyer does about you know from from your law school to your articles to you know working in the course and so on and so forth. So I think that's been a big uh, detriment for immigration community or immigration business or industry, whatever you want to call it. You, you answered one part of the question, but not the other part. Oh, let's see. <laughs> you should be exa the examiner who follows up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. uh, <laughs> you're doing what you said you would do. <laughs> um, have I, what would I do differently? Uh, I don't know. 
I mean, I'm not saying that I did everything perfectly, but I'm happy with how things turned out. I'm satisfied with the legal career I had. I, probably I would have been a little more careful about stuff that has to do with the law society. <laughs> you know, um, they pay more attention to their their rules and whatnot. So I had my hand slapped. <laughs> <laughs> what one thing that I've noticed is that there don't seem to be as many sole practitioners, at least in Vancouver, in immigration anymore. And I don't know if you guys have all noticed that either, but it seemed like there was a lot of consolidating or the emergence of the big four practicing. That it seems like there's like you know like our three respective firms, which all have I think five or more lawyers. Um, and then that seems there just don't seem to be as many one to two person uh, immigration firms anymore yeah. it makes sense to me in the sense that like all of us have um, you know when you meet other immigration lawyers you say what type you know we all have a very specific portfolio you know I do the litigation at our firm I do the admissibility practice Nika does work for me so mm-hmm. like everyone has carved out their own little mm-hmm. niche so being a sole practitioner is a much more challenging thing now because trying to practice all of the immigration law sounds to me as absurd as doing a general practice. Yeah. Well, I think it's also healthy to be, you know, in a, in a firm with more than two or three people because if you want to go away on a holiday or something, you know, if you're a sole practitioner, and I've done this, you know, you're spending like hours before you go. You're worrying about it on the vacation. You come back and there's hours to sort of catch up and sort of makes it unenjoyable. Whereas if you're with a firm with other people, here, run with this. And so you've got that backup. And I think that's important. Also, here's another thing I would say to all lawyers, whether they're young or old, is make sure that you take lots of time off, even for short periods of time. Go go off to California, Mexico for five days, six days. Yeah, like just do it and periodically, not once a year. Yes. Leaving the phone at home. Yes. That's why I go, like when I go backpacking and it's interesting because it's like if it's, and there's no cell phone reception for that first 12 hours, you're kind of like, oh, I wonder what I'm missing. And then you completely forget about it. And then you turn your phone on at the end of the trip and you wait for it to stop vibrating after, you know, a couple minutes and then Oh, oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's essential because it, it's like there's like it builds up and yeah. after if you let that just keep building up over the years it uh I think uh, Steve Covey I don't know if you know him or not he's, a, he's written a lot of sort of self-help books and one of the things he said is that you've got to make sure that you sharpen the saw in other words stop cutting wood take the saw get the file out get it sharp and then go back and do it because you're going to do a much more efficient and effective mm-hmm. job. And I think that's that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, for sure. Sharpening the saw. Sometimes I sit down on my computer and when I look at it and I'm just so anxious by what's going in because there's so many things to do that today I send myself home. Go watch a good little movie or something. Seriously, <laughs> it's just like I yeah. just need to get the mechanism back. And <laughs> yeah. I remember times when I some of the other lawyers and they go out and watch a movie in the middle of the afternoon. First time it was just incredible guilt. Like, yes. ooh, what are we doing? You know? but, yeah, the next day you come back and it's like, what was it so fast yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So how did you get over that? Just by doing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and seeing 
how it does help, how it does benefit. Like, you know, take some time off, you come back, now you're refreshed, you've got a, yeah. some new energy. I think new lawyers, it takes them about a decade to get there. And I think that yeah. some, it, it, it does, it weeds out many, they don't get past that first decade. Yeah. And, and you don't have to go exotic places. I mean, you know, like you say, go backpacking, go canoe trip, go shopping in Bellingham, I don't know, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. Or spending time with the kids. For me, it was the kids yeah. that made the big difference. It was yeah. like, it's just, it changed the priorities significantly. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of walking out of the office at five o'clock is, yeah. is just, then you realize there's a big pile of stuff on your desk at five o'clock, just like there used to be a big pile of stuff on my desk at eight o'clock. And I like, you know, you walk out of the office at eight o'clock, there was a big pile of stuff left on your desk. And, yeah, you know. And your kids can tell when you're thinking about it too. Like they're like a, right. a human lie detector. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I think for, for, I mean, for, Probably for anybody, for the one in particular, there are probably three things, three areas I would say that. One is know-how. In other words, understanding the law, the act, all that stuff. Another is your your connections, your relationships with other colleagues, with your family, friends, making time for that. Uh, and then the other one is just feeling that you're in control of your life. You know? So you're not letting other people dictate to you, and sometimes you just have to say no to things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means saying no to work too, which yeah. I think is something that's hard. Better to say no to work than to your spouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's oh, been uh, it's been great. Uh, it's definitely been uh, been a good talk, and so I, I, I think. We're all sad to see you go. Uh, I'm sure if you'll come back, uh, you'll, you'll come come back around and. No, but I mean, like, is it in the sense that you're you're somebody who's always been around from when I started since I started practicing? Yeah. You, you've always been yeah. one of the senior litigators around. That I just uh, well, it, it was yeah. it was kind of odd going to the uh, yeah. seeing the the, the um, CLEVC conference where you weren't chairing it. I was like, but isn't that like doesn't Daryl just that chair that? I, I just thought that was that was part of the wasn't that like Daryl's yeah. you know yeah. uh, Do you find Darryl's yourself like when you're reading an article on immigration still wanting to write a letter to the editor going, Oh my gosh, this is unreasonable and uh, I mean, Yeah, I mean I, I don't really put much stock in writing letters to the editor, but yeah. I see something in it. I still do a lot of reading about immigration and what's going on. Just because it's of interest. Still digest those yeah. cases coming out of the federal. Well, <laughs> but really, it's interesting because I have been in this business for a long time, and every year when I go to these functions, there's so many lawyers I don't even have a clue who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, the younger lawyers coming out, and now you guys are probably at that stage where you're the more senior members of the bar, and you see all the young up and coming people and. And, uh, maybe you have the same re- reaction. Well, it's the first time I think we've all experienced where our employees are now sitting up on panels for the first time ever. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we're no longer invited to the young lawyers' functions. Yes. <laughs> that was a big thing for me. That was, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have a mentorship program? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the thing, exactly. You have to come as the mentor, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, it's been fun. Yeah, yeah. Rehash some of those uh, memories, get some perspective on it. So, thank you. Great. Well, thank you. Okay.